Wood McKenzie's online Future Facing Commodities Forum is back for its third year. Join us online on March 27th for an open discussion with our experts on renewables, EVs, and advanced battery technology. There will be two events on that date, one during the day in the Asia-Pacific region and one during the day in Europe and the Americas, so you should be able to find a time to suit you wherever you are in the world. At either one, you will be able to get insights from our unparalleled integrated coverage of the renewables, battery, and electric vehicles value chains. You'll be able to hear our industry-leading analysts unpack their forecasts for key future-facing commodities, including lithium, nickel, copper, aluminum, and rare earths. Learn how technology, geopolitics, and regulation are transforming the metals markets as we build an electrified future. To register, go to go.woodmac.com ffcf2024. You can find the details in today's show notes. This is The Interchange Recharged, a Wood McKenzie production. I'm David Bandmiller. The traditional process of battery development for electric vehicles is slow, expensive, and capital-intensive. Over the past few months, we've heard about the seemingly endless use cases for AI in the energy industry. Some are significant. Others, however, seem to be all hype. On the show today, we explore how AI could help overcome the challenges of predicting battery performance, assist with the vast design space, and conduct time-consuming cycle life testing. I'm joined by Alan Espero gruzik Director at Acceleration Consortium, and Jason Kohler, CTO and co-founder at Chemix, to discuss leveraging AI to speed up the process of battery development and enable wide-scale adoption of electric vehicles. Machine learning and EV battery development. Significant breakthrough, or is it just hype? Let's find out. Jason, welcome to the show. Glad to be here, David. Alan, appreciate you joining us. Yeah, happy to be here with you guys. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about Chemex, your guys' background from a career standpoint, what you guys are looking to do with the company. So Jason, why don't I start off with you? Yeah, so my academic background is in theoretical physics. I did my PhD at Berkeley working on quantum gravity, so some research in black hole information. But I kind of got a disillusioned with that. And you know, I didn't feel like I was solving maybe the most pressing problems in society, some problems with a real um, countdown, if you will. So I transitioned into sustainability and I got really interested in clean tech and energy storage and ultimately in battery development. And so I spent some time working at a startup, working on uh, battery chemistry, lithium metal batteries for electric flight. And then I've also worked as a data scientist at a software company. So a lot of physicists go into AI, it turns out. And so I kind of eventually went the same direction, but very uh, applied to the battery development space. So Chemix, what Chemix is really all about is speeding up the process of battery development. And the I think we'll get into a lot more of the details, but the fundamental premise here is that to really enable wide-scale um, electrification and transportation, we need batteries to get a lot better still. Today's batteries, EVs are still too expensive, still cost more than their internal combustion engine counterparts, as well as their issues with range anxiety and you know, charging speed and all of that. So batteries need to get better. And at the same time, it's important to recognize there's really no one-size-fits-all with batteries. The, the battery that you have in a you know racing motorcycle is going to be very different from the battery in a long-haul truck. I mean, just think about engines for a minute. The same thing would be true. You wouldn't expect the same engine in all of these different types of vehicles. So we need better batteries and we need a variety of them. But the traditional process of developing these batteries and finding the right combinations and the right materials to go in these batteries is just really slow, really expensive, capital intensive. And so at Chemex, what we're doing is leveraging AI to really speed up that process. And I think we can get into some of the details about why 
battery development is really challenging later in this call and, and kind of where AI fits into this picture. But that's a, a kind of a high level overview of, of what we're up to. Alan, how about a little bit about your background? Yeah, so I am a professor of chemistry and computer science at the University of Toronto. Before that, before 2018, I was a professor at Harvard, also in chemistry. And before that, I did my PhD in University of California, Berkeley, and I hail from Mexico. My passions are how to accelerate science and engineering. It has been my life kind of goal. First, I started with how quantum computers could help develop new materials. And then well, I was one of the pioneers of thinking about how AI can help develop new materials. In the context of this call, uh, I have very fortunate that when I was at Harvard, I met Kai Shang Ling, which is co-founder of the company with Jason and runs the company with Jason and takes the role as CEO. And Kai Shang was a grad student when I was a professor there. We were developing a technology of batteries called Flow Batteries together with other professors. So there was a moment where uh, Kai Shang called me and says, I met this very smart theoretical physicist called Jason and, and we're going to build a company. And I happened to be flying to San Francisco, I remember, around that time. So we met together in a Thai place or something like that. I think he was Thai, if Jason remembers. And I started talking to them about the company, got excited. I helped them find some investments and then became one of their advisors. I'm pretty busy advice. Uh, I cannot advise an infinite number of companies. So Chemix is one of those that I decided to work with. And the reason is because I truly believe that AI will accelerate materials discovery and systems discovery and uh, module discovery and so on all over the world. AI for engineering and science is huge. So last thing I would say about me, I, I direct a large initiative in the University of Toronto related to this topic called Acceleration Consortium. It's the largest grant ever given in Canada to a university, to 100 million Canadian, which is about 150 million USD. And we're building a bunch of labs here that develop materials for different applications with different professors. And I think the collaboration through that with Chemex will also be very interesting because all of our academic work can also be connected to the cool things that Chemex is doing. So that's how I know Jason and Kai Shangan, and I help them any way I can, scientifically and also business-wise. Jason, you mentioned you know the complexities around the composition of the batteries and coming up to the right solutions. And that's one of the things that I'd love to dig in a little bit more is I was talking to the DOE uh, not too long ago, and they had noted that in, from an investment standpoint and support, they're tracking somewhere 120 to 150 different compositions on batteries. What are some of the challenges that Chemex is looking to solve? Because like you said, trying to find the right composition, the testing can be painfully long as well to make sure that you've got it working. But what are you working on to help accelerate that and really come up to the optimal solution? Sure. Yeah. Good question. So at a high level, again, the goal is to make batteries better and, and really enable wide-scale adoption of electric vehicles. But you know, what does that actually mean? Why is battery development even challenging in the first place? It's helpful to think about basically three reasons. But first of all, batteries are just really complicated. And by that, I mean, there are dozens of different materials inside a battery. They're interacting in various ways in different states of matter. And it's just really hard to predict from a sort of first principles point of view, or even based on intuition, how a given tweak to the chemistry will affect the performance. So if you change the concentration of an additive in the electrolyte, you know, you increase it from half a percent to 1%, you know, what effect will that have? Or you swap out this active material for this other active material. It's very challenging to predict this. And in this sense, batteries are sort of like a black box. The second challenge is really that there's a nearly infinite design space for battery materials. Um, because again, there's such a large number of materials inside the battery, there's just a huge space of possible combinations from variants on active materials, again, all the way to the you know tiny, tiny concentrations of additives in the electrodes and in the electrolyte. And so it's really deciding which of these materials are even worth testing and which combinations are even worth testing 
that's a huge bottleneck because you only have finite testing resources, which kind of takes me to the third issue, which is that battery testing really takes a very long time. One of the key performance metrics for any new battery technology and one of the really bottlenecks is cycle life, which is how many times can you charge and discharge that battery before it degrades to the point where you can't use it anymore. There are tons of extremely high performance batteries. If you look at every other metric that could be used, but because their cycle life is so poor, you'd have to replace the battery so frequently that practically they're not useful for anything. And so doing this cycle life testing is really a traditionally a very manual process. You just have to charge the battery, you discharge it, you put it in these chambers, and you just let it run over and over again, charge, discharge, charge, discharge. And you just count how many cycles you can get before it reaches end of life. That's typically the way it's done. So when you combine all of these challenges together, we have this really complicated system with a large number of possible combinatorial options to consider, and that each of those options takes quite a long time to test experimentally, this is a very, very challenging problem and is basically the reason why battery development has been quite slow for the last few decades. But if you think about this problem phrased that way, this starts to sound like an interesting problem for an AI approach, because we have a really complicated system that humans aren't very good at understanding, but maybe an AI system will be good at understanding given enough data. And then we have this cycle life testing challenge, which is basically a forecasting problem of forecasting how many cycles we'll be able to achieve with this battery. Uh, and so by collecting large amounts of data, by running a lot of experiments, and by really systematically exploring this design space of possible combinations of materials using AI, basically we're able to speed up this development process. And so the goal here is to speed up the process by, you know, 10x so that we can, instead of having to wait a decade for a better battery or years for a better battery for a given application, we can get it in months instead. Alan, what are your views on the AI impact on what Jason just said? Well, uh, without AI, one drives uh, this vast chemical space blindly, okay? The way you want to think about it is the number of possible combinations of all the ingredients that go into a battery, say you discretize it and say, I'm going to assume the concentrations are a certain range, right? And you use the combinatorics of what it will take to formulate a battery, you quickly come into astronomical number of combinations, right? Because you have all the ingredients and all the possible ways you can arrange them. And you might have some very, very interesting non-obvious interactions in say, maybe you have one or two additives and you have a third additive that has a very interesting effect and changes some chemistry in the electrode interface or things like that, right? It's such a complex system that really what AI does, it does two things that are pretty sexy. The first one is it looks at the black box with no biases like humans. Many of the discoveries that we've done in my lab and also I imagine some of the things that Jason and Akashai have been finding is this counterintuitive phase where a human might have a certain conception of what will work why. And then because the AI is actually much more data-driven, it finds creative combinations that you didn't think about. First of all, just because it's just fully driven by data. The second thing, and this is the power of AI, is that AI has a huge memory. Just think about what happens with ChatGPT. ChatGPT is a parrot that goes around and reads the entire internet. And then you talk to the parrot and the parrot parrots to you the internet. And not surprisingly, so much data has been fed into it that the AI will talk back to you almost in a convincing way. So that technology, it's a very powerful technology. This sequential model technology, this type of technology in general, is a very powerful technology. And that's one of the tools that is leveraged by Chemex, right? Chemex is able to leverage the tool and what to meet tools like that, not of course the words, but battery data, which basically means that the more experiments Chemex does, the more it can predict with less data, the more it will learn the general behavior of what a battery is going to do. 
right? I am doing that also in the context, for example, of all sorts of crazy applications. Like I just put a paper in the archive yesterday on how this technology could help quantum computers solve the electronic structure of molecules, right? This kind of sequential models. And I think the power of Chemex is that Chemex is using AI the right way. What do you mean by that? Collecting all the information that you can, making sure that the information is actually used so that you can have this increased predicted performance over time, right? And also, one of the weaknesses of many startups, and that's the reason I don't advise them, is that either they have an AI guru and no materials guru, or they have a materials guru and no AI guru. Right? And what is really cool about the startup is that both Jason and Kaija have chemistry and battery materials experience, but Jason is kind of more like the AI guru, and then Kaija is more like the materials guru. And that combination of the two, and of course their team, makes it such that the AI is actually working. So there's very few places in the world where I know AI is working in truly materials development cycles. Turns out that, you know, I would say Chemex is one of them. I tend to look at the battery space a little bit simplistically, right? I think when you're looking at EV batteries in particular, you could probably do this across the board, but I kind of look at three key factors in what's going to make it successful is you've got duration, capacity, and Jason, like you mentioned, cycle life. So with all those different combinations, it could impact one versus the other. So for example, maybe you have a composition that really increases the capacity of the battery, but the cycle life is minimal, right? Or vice versa. Are you finding some of those challenges that some compositions are really good at one aspect of it, but not on the other? Because I think to really drive the sustainability forward and get adoption of EVs and get everybody excited about it, you're probably going to have to hit all three of those aspects to get people excited. No, that's exactly right. So batteries are a highly multi-dimensional problem. Not only the large dimensionality of the possible combinations that you can build the batteries with, but also in how you evaluate them. So exactly what you said, there's the range, there's the cycle life, there's the cost, how much heat does this battery generate? How fast can I charge it? There's probably 10 different key performance metrics for evaluating a battery for a given application. And what typically happens when human researchers are tackling this problem is that you have a sort of a starting point and then you have an idea for how to improve one aspect, one of those performance metrics, but then you end up compromising on the other ones. And so you're constantly playing this game sort of of whack-a-mole of trying to, you know, get the right combinations and not sacrifice anything anywhere else, or at least not sacrifice anything you care about. This, I think, is actually one of the main strengths of the AI approach, which is that the AI system can consider these 10 performance metrics almost as easily as considering just one or two, because it's just seeing numbers and the dimensionality of the space is not such a bottleneck. So this actually lets us essentially, I mean, the way to think about what we're actually doing day to day is we work with customers, we understand what kind of performance they need for the vehicle that they're trying to build, and then we work with them to understand the battery requirements. We input that into our system, including all of the metrics we just talked about, and then we just say go. And then we check back on it a few months later, and we see what it's discovered through this iterative process every day, new designs, new experiments, new data, update the models, new designs, new experiments, new data. This sequential loop, considering all of these parameters at once, is what really drives us towards our customers basically being able to build the vehicles that they want to build and not be constrained by whatever batteries they can get off the shelf, which are usually optimized for just one or just two of these metrics in particular, rather than being a good combination of all of them. A classic example would be if you're building a high-performance sports car, there are batteries that you can get that will give you good acceleration and, and really fast power delivery, 
but then the range of the vehicle will be very short, maybe only 100 miles. Or there are batteries that can last much longer from a range perspective, but generate a lot of heat when they're being discharged and therefore driving really fast or charging really fast, that doesn't work very well. So we're really trying to bridge that gap and remove that trade-off or at least push the frontier of what's possible. Yeah, there are a number of different factors too. I failed to mention safety, obviously, is safety, is one of them. Cost. <laughs> the different compositions. Right. Um, you know, on that, that was one of the questions I was going to ask is on the compatibility issue. So, I mean, not only are you trying to solve the most efficient battery, but they're going to have different uses for different cases, right? I mean, you've got batteries for multiple different things. I mean, how are you addressing that in terms of the end market for the battery compositions? Yeah, this is just a reality of the battery industry. A lot of people want it to be a one-size-fits-all problem, and people have this idea in their minds that there'll be this holy grail battery, and you know, once we discover that, then it's game over for everything else. But I'm not very optimistic about that. I think it's much more of a portfolio approach. It's just in the same way that you have different vehicles for different applications. It's not like there's only one type of vehicle. And we're trying to electrify basically all of transportation, not to mention grid-scale energy storage. So the idea that there would just be one battery, I think, is a bit too simplistic. So what this means is we have to have a, a system right? It's not about let's all get together and just discover this one thing. It's how do we build a system that can repeatedly and reliably develop these batteries for these different applications? So that's where the AI, again, and the software-driven development comes in because it's a system approach. We can set it up to work on multiple products in parallel and just parallelize the experiments that are being run, parallelize the compute that's running in the cloud, and just scale up as the market dictates. Alan, as far as the AI development and kind of getting it to a place where it needs to be to be really efficient and help out with the acceleration of the analysis and the testing and just the overall development, where do you think we are in that process and how far do you think we have to go? I feel that we have a lot of the tools already to do what Jason and the team at Chemex are doing or what my lab and I are doing in terms of AI. Whoops, did we always invent the ones? But I think with the Robert hits the role in general in the field and Chemex is also moving in that direction as well. And we're starting to collaborate on that, on the automation of everything, right? So that the humans are kind of kept out of the loop as much as possible. So the robot does what we like to call a self-driving laboratory. So just my group two days ago released a review paper for chemical reviews. We're submitting it to chemical reviews that has uh, something like uh, 900 or so. I forget the number of citations of all the different developments in the field of self-driving laboratories is really a global movement that uh, I was lucky to be one of the pioneers of thinking about. So we are very familiar with a self-driving car. Well, the self-driving lab is basically has the brain that we've been talking about, but also like a car, the car has also the red brain, but it needs the wheels and it needs the, the battery to move around, right? And that's exactly what we need. We need to have a lab that actually is run by robotic systems. So I think that is the next frontier. That's where the AI will become very powerful because then you have like a factory, right? Some sort of system that is searching as efficiently as possible because robots don't get tired, right? So I think we are getting more and more towards that situation. That doesn't mean that what chemists does and we do also in my lab is that, of course, not everything is automated. So there's humans involved in the processes as well, but the humans are actually following, in some sense, the kind of map of navigation chemical space that, that the AI is laying out. Will there be other AI developments that will impact the fields moving so fast? So yes, maybe two, three years from now, uh, Jason will be using a different architecture. But I like to say, and he probably agrees with me, the king here is data. Data is everything. Okay. So I like to always say in machine learning, data is absolutely at the top, right? It's like the king mattress. Then the queen mattress, it will be the representation of your data. That's the second one that is the most important. 
And then finally, the AI model. So changing the AI model is usually saturated by the power of the data and then the representation. So maybe Jason and his team will find a better representation for the data, dramatically reduces the number of data points to make a prediction. So that's also very possible. So those are the three layers, generating more data with the robots. Number two, being very smart about what data representations and what things are you measuring, what things are redundant, what things you can improve. And then finally, the model is the least important of them all. I'll just add to that. That's a, a great point. In the AI community, and, and there's a lot of hype and attention around what kind of models you're working on. And a lot of academics in traditional AI are working on model architecture development. But the data is absolutely a key point. And this is why um, at Chemix, we're doing things a little bit differently, which is that we decided to vertically integrate and basically collect all the data ourselves, have our own lab, run our own lab, kind of like what Alan was just talking about with the self-driving lab concept, rather than building a software product that other companies would use because the data collection is so important and because we want to have full control over what data is collected, how it's collected, what is the throughput, what's the consistency of the different experiments and all of this. So I think high level, when people are talking about using AI, and this goes beyond batteries, this goes beyond even clean tech, when people are talking about using AI, it's always important to ask, where's the data coming from? What kind of data are you going to use? Do you have to generate yourself? Does it already exist? who owns it, et cetera. And even, I think uh, this is coming up in the um, large language model world as well with uh, you know copyright issues around who owns the data that large language models are being trained on. So this is a really important point. Yeah, I was going to ask what you're doing from a quality control standpoint on that data, right? Because the quality data is obviously very key, not just in this process, but in a number of others. And you, to use the old saying, I mean, garbage in, garbage out. So what kind of controls do you have to make sure that that data that's being input into these models is quality and accurate? Right. This is, I would say, the, the least sort of sexy part of it, which is really making sure that the experiments are done in a self-consistent way. So the vision that we have at Chemex is that every single experiment we ever conduct contributes to our future decision-making power of our system going forward forever. So this means that even from day one of the company, we're very careful about setting things up and doing experiments in a way that the data that they generate and the quality of that data would be useful for a very long time. This creates this positive feedback effect where every experiment we do makes things more powerful, which means that the predictions coming out of the models are better, which means that the next set of experiments is more impactful. And it's this positive feedback, almost compound interest-like effect that's quite powerful and that we're seeing play out. So it's just being extremely disciplined. And the other thing is that when humans do experiments and humans develop new materials themselves, they know either consciously or subconsciously, all of the context around what they're working on. They know I used this process to make this material and I measured it using that machine and so on. And because they know that and because they're being self-consistent, they may not write all of this down or they may not write it down and record it in a way that a machine can use later. But because we know that everything is going to be processed by an AI system, that's the whole point of the company, we make sure everything is recorded and everything is recorded in a machine intelligible way. And this just takes a lot of discipline and a lot of rigor, but we believe it's the best way forward to really accelerate the process as much as possible. So Alan, China right now really dominates the BV battery space. Do you think that the adoption of AI across the board can help kind of level the playing field, particularly in the US, but across the board? Yes, I think the way you want to think about it, you want to think about the strengths of building a business here in North America, here, say here in Canada or down south there in the United States, is that we could uh, be very powerful just by IP and data, right? So think about NVIDIA, it's a fabless chip company, right? So like 
it's not like Intel that has the fat, the fab, you know. So I think a company like Chemex at the moment, the biggest asset besides obviously a lot of things, but the assets is the data, right? So the knowledge that the know-how or how to exploit that data to design batteries for particular niches of the EV and beyond battery space is what is going to make Chemex a juggernaut, hopefully, right, in the battery space, right? And that's a different kind of juggernaut uh, than a juggernaut that has a bunch of CapEx and has a big factory somewhere in a place that you pay very little amount of money to the workers, right? That's a different kind of business. I think the business model of working with those producers, right, and being the owner of that IP and so on, is just what can make anybody in the world, but especially in North America, be successful. Being from Mexico, I believe that we have always underestimated what happened in the 80s and happens to a certain extent. The fact that we have an, a country with the right wage structure and workforce to produce things down there. So I would be an advocate to have mega giga battery factories in Mexico one day, and maybe one built by Chemex, right? And I actually had talked to them about potentially going to talk to the Mexicans one day about what's up there, right? So that's an example of things that I feel like eventually... If this company goes into that stage and we need to build a factory, well, let's build it in North America, right? And part of the supply chain thing that you're talking about with China, right? Like I might as well build it in Mexico, which is a friendly nation to the South, even though, as you know, some people politically here are not thinking that way. That's an excellent point because we've talked about it a lot on this podcast because one of my concerns is just overall in the energy transition, you can look at different verticals within it, wind, solar, batteries, EVs, I mean, you name it, they tend to come down to a lot of the same materials. And so you could find yourself in a supply crunch where costs are skyrocketing, there's a shortage, and then you disincentivize adoption, right? Because things have become too expensive or they're too slow. People aren't going to wait a year or whatever for something. And so using the AI to help develop these chemistries to where maybe you're using less of these raw materials or you're using the different composition that doesn't rely so heavily on some of these others, I think is key because separate from the oil and gas industry, the metals and mining industry, it's different. Oil and gas, you can drill a well and you can get the oil and gas up. I mean, to build a new mine, that's going to take at least five years, you know, maybe more like 10 to get the permitting. So it's going to be a longer lead time on this. If we can become more efficient on the materials used and then also the composition to make the batteries more efficient from a storage efficiency, you name it, standpoint, I think that's key, which is what the work that Chemex is doing is the critical component going forward. That's right. And actually, we've seen this play out. The industry is evolving so quickly that the cost of raw materials is actually fluctuating quite rapidly. Because as you say, the supply side is quite slow moving, but the demand side is picking up. So from month to month, the price of lithium, the price of cobalt, the price of nickel, these things are fluctuating quite a lot. And so having a platform that allows us to be nimble and actually design battery chemistries that have different amounts of these materials in there for different geographical regions, for different applications, is super valuable because it's only going to get more chaotic. And I think a lot of companies that really put all their eggs in one basket and just focus on one type of material and one type of battery chemistry are potentially going to struggle. There'll be some that get lucky, but there will be some that because of market forces that are really beyond their control and supply chain dynamics get squeezed. That's another reason why we're taking this kind of platform and portfolio approach. Hey, Alan, the uh, UK government recently kind of backtracked on their 2030 commitments on banning ICE vehicles. What do you think the key drivers of that were? And do you think that the adoption of AI could help bring that back into focus and make that more achievable? Well, this is a different answer. I don't think the answer is AI. What I always like to say the biggest enemy of fighting climate change is politics just the biggest enemy of fighting climate change. And look at the political leaning of the government there, and it's not surprising that 
they will be against EVs. I mean, given the alignments between different types of political movements and, and what we think about the environment, right? So I would say that I'm not an expert in the EV market, but I know that regulation drives innovation. And California has shown that, for example, in the static energy storage, where California by mandating certain uh, amounts of static energy storage helps develop such technologies, right? So if you mandate that cars should be a certain way or that factories should have certain emissions or whatever, people will actually bend to that and technology will be developed. So in some sense, I think here, the culprit is not the eye, the policy and the global urgency of doing something, right? I mean, we are around 1.5 Celsius right now or climate change. I just saw yesterday that Greenland, people, I don't remember how many hundreds of thousands of tons of water that has melted already has not even been accounted. I think we really are completely underestimating in the situation that we are. And therefore, the work that we're doing in chemists is kind of existential to the planet. It's not just a good business opportunity. So yeah, people that do those kind of decisions like the UK are just very blindsided. If we can make batteries much cheaper and reduce the range anxiety, I think that'll have a huge effect on EV adoption. So in some sense, it's however you want to do that, great doesn't have to be an AI approach. We just think an AI approach is going to be the fastest way to do it. But yeah, we just need to do it quickly. Well, what I mean by that is the regulations themselves will basically force the market to buy contracts with companies like Kennex or people that are trying to improve the, the chemistries themselves because now there is an urgency, right, to transforming the economy. And I think right now we are operating blindly with the assumption that somewhat, somehow, things will work out. And in some sense, the EVs are in the market despite these forces. So if these forces were aligned, then we would have a huge EV transformation. Just look at Norway, for example, as an example country where I think things are done well in this respect. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, policy and regulation has really been challenging. I mean, there's been a number of initiatives and laws passed that have been very helpful. But, you know, you look at the IRA and I mean, a lot of that has been focused on production, but there's a huge infrastructure. Right. I mean, the energy transition is a massive undertaking that's not just producing clean energy. There's a lot of different pieces to it going downstream. But I'm curious, Jason, what has Chemex seen as an impact, if any, from the IRA? So people are definitely looking at how to get batteries made in the U.S., but it's still very difficult. It kind of comes back to what we were talking about, where a lot of the raw materials are still being processed elsewhere. So to build up the raw materials infrastructure in the U.S., the processing infrastructure, the whole ecosystem as well as just the labor force for building these factories. We need to have people who can operate them. Each of these battery factories employs potentially thousands of people. Automation will certainly bring that number down, but it's still going to be a lot. And lately, there have been kind of headwinds for battery manufacturing in the U.S., I think, just because of some concerns that EV adoption may not happen as quickly as people had originally thought. Um, there's this notion that, you know, early adopters are already driving EVs. They're kind of second vehicles or supplementing the vehicles they have. And the sort of mainstream has not quite gotten there yet for some of the reasons we've already talked about. So for Chemex specifically, we're not limiting ourselves to the U.S. market. The problem we're trying to solve is a global one. And, you know, we're trying to provide global solutions. But we certainly hope there will be more battery manufacturing in the U.S. But right now, relying on battery manufacturing in the U.S. is not going to be the speediest option. And the time is really of the essence here. So the IRA is having some effect, but it's perhaps not the solution that would just radically transform everything overnight. Yeah, and that's exactly a point. It, it seems that some of these laws or these initiatives that are moving forward are focused on one aspect where you really need to look at upstream all the way downstream to really have an effective policy in place to make a difference. Like you said, they're looking to make batteries in the U.S., but there's a whole other host of complications that really hasn't been addressed or, to be honest, really discussed at a serious level for policymakers. 
Right. It's a challenge. I hope, you know, manufacturing comes back to the U.S. and is something that we do and take very seriously, but it's going to be difficult. Alan, when you look at different possible applications for AI across the energy transition. I mean, are there any other areas that you think where AI can be impactful and help move some of these initiatives forward beyond just kind of the battery space, which we've been talking about? Well, yeah, I mean, there's so many beautiful applications of AI in the energy transition that I could keep going and going. For example, as the grid becomes more renewable, we will have to store more energy and we'll have to buy and sell energy all over the place. And like AI can help us with decisions of real-time allocation, AI can help us with, for example, the, you know, the best transmission lines that we need to perhaps install, given the new grid. I'm thinking a lot of electricity right now, but you can move on to other aspects. I know there's work on the logistics of transporting oil around the planet, or there's work in even uh, generative design, like Autodesk, this huge company, right, has beautiful work on generative design of stuff that we use around to use less materials of a certain type, like a chair. And, and finally, you know, AI could help with materials for insulation. Uh, Vaklash Mil, a professor at the University of Manitoba that I really admire, points out that if you really want to think about where to invest globally in terms of, especially here in the global north, in terms of energy gains, the most return on investment that if you were a government, you would do, you would be insulate or your homes, especially here in Canada, right? Such a simple thing like that. And now, and we were just talking about how you perhaps in Texas also have some cold issues, right? So insulating is number one thing that you can do, okay, in terms of ROI. So I think those type of decisions could also be aided by AI and not the science, right? You say I'm a government and I'm going to decide I want to make an insulation program. Where do I insulate first? It's that the science problem, right? What is the first city in Canada that I will go and like really, really promote this? Maybe it's going to be Winnipeg or something. Right. So those are the kinds of things I think about AI in terms of the energy transition. It can impact pretty much almost every activity that we do in the field. So it's becoming, of course, as you know, more and more of a tool that aids and speeds up the development. So if we have the goodwill and AI and humans, we can probably tackle climate change. I'm an optimist, but we have to start yesterday. Tell us a little bit more about the uh, Acceleration Consortium partnership and the work you guys are doing on that. Yeah, so Canada has this program called Canada First Research Excellent Fund, which I like it because I left America because of America First. I find it a really bad movement. But Canada First is a slightly different world. It means we're going to be first in technology and science and a topic. It has a completely different meaning here. So I, I, we got a grant under this beautiful program called the Canada First Research Excellence Fund that says, well, Canada, let's pick five, ten things that we're going to do very well. So Canada decided that, well, invest in us, we, we, our pitch is we're going to make Toronto the capital for AI for materials in the world, okay? So we want to believe that the next chemics company uh, would be built here rather than in the Bay Area. That, that's our hope, right? We have a lot of AI for materials companies here already, but we want to make sure we are the epicenter of that, the same way Boston is the epicenter for biotech. That is the large ambition of our grant. But our grant is basic science grant, mostly, that uh, involves social sciences, involves very important aspects of indigenous areas of Canada. For example, what are the needs that our indigenous colleagues need or what is the vision that they have about how materials live in the environment. So we have some interesting concepts about what exactly is a molecule in the context of the cosmovision of the indigenous Canadians, for example. That's a very interesting concept just by itself. All the way down to setting up seven self-driving laboratories on Different areas, right? One of them is in scale-up, one of them is in solid-state materials, one of them is in inorganic materials, organic materials, biomaterials, polymers. So we're going to have a building that's actually being constructed as we speak, where a lot of these things are going to be housed. Right now we're housing them in different places and staffing our staff scientists. 
So it's really like an institute, if you want to think about it, which is going to be devoted to this mission. We also have 12 startup packages for 12 new faculty members to actually foster up our team, right? It's almost like building a team like the Real Madrid or building a team like, like Barcelona. You need to bring the best players, right? So we want to bring the best players globally. So that's what Canada invested in us doing. We have seven years to do it. We're midway the first year. And we don't call it an institute. We call it a consortium because since day one, companies are involved. So Chemex is involved as one of our startup partners, right? But we also have large corporations like, you know, Merck Europe or Roche Genentech or other companies being signed up, Japanese chemical companies and others that could be announced very soon that are joining us in an industrial consortium around the academic efforts so that we actually together in a pre-competitive fashion advance Matthias innovation. Because one of the things you want to think about is today we're talking about energy, but what about water filtration? What about solar cells, right? What about antibiotics? What about uh, new drugs? A lot of these different problems require the same approach, accelerated AI-enabled science. So what the Acceleration Consortium needs this to be, wants to be, is the global hub for these activities. Obviously, many other countries are investing and are having the same ambition. So it's a little bit like a space race that is very friendly because we talk to everybody, but we're a little bit like Canada's space agency for this uh, moonshot of going to material space. Jason, looking over the next, call it 10, 20 years, uh, not including policy, regulation, or any supply chain constraints, what do you think the biggest hurdles are for EV adoption? I'm biased perhaps, but I still think it will be the battery performance. I still think that, you know, that is the thing that separates an EV from an ICE vehicle. I think we're going to see, you know, raw material prices fluctuate a lot, which is going to lead to more uncertainty and kind of hesitation around building new battery factories, um, which is unfortunate. And I also think, I do think a lot of approaches that are focused on a one-size-fits-all solution will struggle. I think also a lot of the hype around battery developments that require completely novel manufacturing processes, some of these will work out, but I think a lot of them won't. So in particular, solid-state batteries are approaches where you basically can't leverage the existing manufacturing process. Because the thing is, we do know how to make batteries today. We make lots of them across the world, and we know how to do this well. But tweaking that process, even if the performance looks good on paper, to the extent that you have to change the manufacturing process, it throws a huge wrench in the goal of cranking out tons of batteries at high performance and low cost. And so I think a lot of those announcements will kind of fall by the wayside. But I think we will be able to do a lot with the current manufacturing processes and just making improvements, combining the materials in novel ways, coming up with new materials. And I think the sort of current manufacturing process will be the workhorse of batteries going forward. And I'm quite optimistic. I think we have the tools that we need to solve the problem we're trying to solve. And I think it's just a matter of execution. And I think we just have to be very clever about how we do it and not just you know, do things the same way we've been doing them for decades, but really do something new. Are there any issues with maybe what comes up as the optimal composition for a battery and methods of the charging stations? I mean, do you see any issues with compatibility there going forward if what comes out to be the most efficient battery and and cost effective is different than how the build out of the infrastructure for charging is? No, I don't see the issues there. There's a lot of electronics between the charging station and the battery itself. There's the battery management system, and then there's you know, a lot of electronics in the vehicle that convert the voltages and so on. So the good news is I think we can treat these as parallel projects. I think we should absolutely build more charging stations that should proceed full speed ahead. And I don't think there'll be any backwards compatibility issues with new batteries because yeah, it's, it's wrapped in all the power electronics inside the battery pack. So that's good. Well, Alan, Jason, it's been a great discussion. I really appreciate you guys joining me today. Learned a lot about, you know, the AI's impact here, and I'm looking forward to seeing how much more things develop. Yeah, many thanks. Yeah. Thanks, David, for having us. The Interchange is a Wood McKenzie production. 
We'll be releasing the show every second Tuesday with our next episode out on February 13th. So mark your diaries and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm David Bammiller. It's been a pleasure joining you. See you next time.